You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rusk. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rusk Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rusk AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Paolo Costa, you're from Vanguard. You've got a PhD from Harvard. Welcome onto the Australian Finance Podcast today. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. I'm incredibly excited to be here to talk about personal finances. Amazing. And you're, uh, we're speaking to you now all the way from the United States. So it's, uh, it's just about your evening over there. So thank you so much for doing this. I'm sure our audience are going to get a lot from this episode. But before we jump into the conversation, I'd be keen to know a little bit about your backstory. Because as I mentioned before, go, doing a PhD at Harvard seems like something that we only see in the movies in Australia. And I'd love to know a bit about what drove you to study behavioral economics. Absolutely. So first of all, I'm originally from Brazil. You may hear, you know, I have a different accent. And what's interesting about that is that I grew up very low income in Brazil. And as I was growing up, Brazil went through a hyperinflation. So all of the things that you hear about high inflation levels in a hyperinflation, everything is turned up substantially, right? So we're talking about over 50% inflation every month. So economics, finance, personal finance, that becomes, you know, top of mind for everybody. So that certainly, you know, molded the way that I see finances and personal finances in general. So very early on, I was very interested in these topics. So then later on, when I got to high school, there was an opportunity for Brazilian students to apply for American universities. And I was very lucky, you know, in that year. 
it was the 0809 financial crisis. So not many universities had money to actually provide scholarship for students. And I applied to 17 universities. I got into one <laughs> and that happened to be Yale University. And at Yale, that's where I really fell in love with economics. An interesting story is that I actually went to study engineering. My father's an engineer, my brother's an engineer, and the Yale campus is very long. And I was not very used to walking a lot from building to building. So in the middle of the afternoon, I like taking naps in one of the classroom buildings. And in the middle of the nap, I woke up and it was an economics class that had started and I was in it. And from that, I saw the professor talking about economic inequality using a mathematical equation. And I, would, I loved math. I cared tremendously about social issues and economics. And the moment that I left that class, I said, that's what I'll do for the rest of my life. And it's funny because a lot of my friends joked and said, you know, everybody loves introductory economics. But here we are, you know, that happened almost 15 years ago. Here I am with a PhD in economics, studying the things that I saw, you know, in that classroom. So economics finance is extremely personal to me because I don't only get to, to, to study personal finances, but also I think it just affects uh, all of our lives. So I'm just really excited about doing research on this topic. I don't think I've ever heard anyone end up in a particular career path by falling asleep in a lecture, but that's <laughs> uh, that's one way to get there. And I, I think it's interesting how you touched on your experience growing up in childhood because uh, we've spoken a lot on the show and guests have shared before how their experiences with money, whether it was in their economy or with their parents, have really shaped the way they see money now. And sometimes they have to unpick some of those behaviors because they might not be serving them. And I'm, I'd be interested to know how you see that play out personally and maybe if there's any research you've seen around this topic. Absolutely. And I mean, this is actually one of my favorite behavioral finance stories comes from this which is having grown up very low income in Brazil, money was always very tight. I distinctively remember my mother getting, you know, a blank sheet of paper, dividing it in four parts. And each of those parts would be the monthly budget. And that was like the law of the house. Like you had to follow that budget. Like that's where the money got allocated because it was very tight. So growing up, even after I left my parents' house, you know, having a budget and knowing where my money is going is extremely important to me. So that's something that I carry. And I mean, to your point, I think this idea that those early experiences really mold who we are financially many years later is incredibly true. So I've seen in my personal story, but also that I, there is research showing that this is very much the case. I think the two classic papers on this are by Ulrika Malmendier from the University of California, Berkeley. And one of them is called Depression Babies, and it's showing that folks who grew up in times in which the stock market wasn't doing super well, they would not later on in their life invest as much in the stock market compared to folks who grew up in moments when the stock market was doing well. So really pointing back to those early life experiences. And she also has another paper talking about growing up in high inflationary experiences. So to your point, it is right. Your early influences really end up you know, really being a big part of who you are later on in your financial life. Mm. And that's the point we try to make on this show is that you might have had these experiences and you might have been told in the past you're not good with money, but 
you can change that and you can learn and you can start investing for the first time. And this is part of your trajectory that you do have some control over. And one of the the big players in this and that has made investing a lot more accessible for people is the index funds. And we probably refer to them a lot more in Australia as exchange traded funds, ETFs. And since you work at Vanguard, I'd be really keen if you could give us a little bit of a the backstory of Vanguard, because it's been mentioned a lot on the show before and what the mission is. Absolutely. So I will start with our core purpose is to take a stand for all investors. So not only Vanguard investors, all investors to treat them fairly and to give them the best chance for investment success. So where did this come from? So now I think more than 45 years ago, so John Bogle or Jack Bogle, as people call him as well, had this vision to start this company that was very different from others. And what, what was different about it? This company has no shareholders. So then the question becomes, so where did all the profits go? So the profits at Vanguard go back into the company and they are used to lower the investment management costs for the investors. So this is really bold, as you can imagine, but, but quite brilliant at the same time, because then it makes sure that over time, the cost of investing becomes lower and lower over time, making Vanguard more and more appealing to the end investor. Now, you know, more than 45 years later, today Vanguard is one of the largest investment management companies. We have more than 30 million investors like worldwide, and we still have no shareholders, which means, you know, there is no share prices that we have to protect, no profit to generate to outside owners. The really entire focus is really our investors. And in Australia, this ownership structure cannot be replicated as it is in the U.S. So Vanguard U.S. operates as the investors being the owners. But this unique structure of the Vanguard U.S. helps us create you know, a size and scale that actually benefits our investors globally as well. So this idea of putting the clients first really shapes our culture, our philosophy, and the policies within Vanguard. So the investors in Australia you know, also benefit from this stability, the low cost of investing, and really the client focus. It's quite amazing how one man and I'm sure thousands and thousands of hardworking employees over the decades have really changed the game of investing for people. And the word Vanguard, people do associate that word with trust and low-cost products and long-term investing as well, which is a pretty cool name to be associated with. Yeah, absolutely. And you're talking about the low-cost funds because they do produce you know, client loyalty that leads to asset growth, that generates the economies of scale that then supports the low-cost funds, and then the cycle continues in that way. But one thing that was surprising to me, I've been with Vanguard for almost three years now. And I remember around the time that I started, I think Vanguard crossed $6 trillion in assets and $7 trillion in assets. And then I remember sending a message to my team saying like, wow, I mean, won't there be a big celebration? $6 trillion, seven, it's a lot of money. It's something to be proud of. The clients are entrusting like, us with their money. And the, the thing that I came very quickly to learn about Vanguard is that we do not pursue short-term asset growth at the expense of the investor's interest. The asset growth is just a consequence. It's not the goal. It's really the byproduct of doing the right things for the investors. So I think this really differentiates us from a lot of the competition. 
And what's beautiful about all of the things that I'm telling you is that we make every decision only with our client's best interest in mind. So that's, I think, what sets the sets Vanguard apart. And you mentioned short-term thinking, and that's one of the behavioral traps that we've we've mentioned briefly on the show before. And given that you're a behavioral economist, I'd be keen to hear from you about why is it so important that we get to know our money behavior and some of those traps that can catch us on our investing journey better? Absolutely. And I think there is a, a joke that you may have heard already, but I like it and I repeat it, which is personal finance is more personal than finance. And I think this couldn't be, you know, more true. You know, when you see, for example, I, like I said, I am a behavioral finance and I like to joke because I'm behavioral finance, all the behavioral bias live within me. That's why I study them, right? Because I, I understand them quite well. And I think it's really important for us to be mindful about our own behaviors to make sure if they are not aligned with our long-term goals, you know, it's something for us to be mindful about. So the way I think a very helpful framework, because I have thought a, a lot about this, is that I think a, a worthy goal to keep in mind is that no matter where you are in your financial journey, you should always aim to take you know, the next best steps for you to reach your financial goal. So instead of sometimes getting overwhelmed about all of the potential things that you could be doing, like what is that next step? What, and then the next one, and then the next one. And then when you see you have gone really a long way towards your financial goals, instead of just thinking about, wow, there are 150 different things I could be doing with my money. And then you get overwhelmed and then you end up not doing anything. And that ends up not being productive. But I think paying attention to your own behavior and make sure that's aligning with your long-term goals. I think that's always a very productive discussion. And that's why, you know, I love listening to podcasts because I think podcasts reminds us about, you know, our goals and also that we're not alone in this journey, right? You know, money at times can be a difficult topic, but, you know, there is a lot of people, you know, thinking about these issues and it's good to be that we're not alone. It can feel very isolating, especially like in Australia, people still don't talk about money that often and we're trying to change that conversation, but it is good reminder with all the resources online that other people are doing this journey alongside of you. And as you said, with Vanguard, there's millions of people doing the journey alongside of you across the world. So you're definitely not alone. And are there any other sort of behavioral finance things that stand out to you that you you love to talk about? You've mentioned analysis paralysis, but are there any others? Yeah. So I think one of the things that I like to think about too is I think we are in a situation at times that we get overwhelmed with the amount of information. And I think Vanguard has been, you know, from its founding, very keen on like tuning out the noise, focus on the things that you can control. So for example, market returns, like we cannot control, control those. We can't control how much we save and how much we spend. So like, why don't we focus on the things that then we can control? Another example. We just talked about the Vanguard structure and low-cost investing. You know, you have a choice between choosing a high, a low-cost product and a high-cost product. So if they're offering the same thing to you, why not switch into the low-cost? And, you know, people don't think this matters. This matters a lot in the long run. Those costs, you know, they really compound over time. We talk about the, the wonders of interest compounding. 
guess what? Cost compounds as well. So, you know, if you can keep costs low, you know, this does wonders for your personal finances. So I love the fact that we have so much information at our hands. So what I like to think is use that to your advantage. Don't use that, you know, to get overwhelmed and feeling that you're behind. And think, and if people give you the perception that you, you know, can change things that you cannot, you know, pay attention and focus on the things that you can control. So again, savings, the cost base that you're paying for your investments, having clear goals. So really some of the things that are extremely important. And so I just beg people, do not get distracted by other things that are not within your control. But it's challenging. There's so many shiny objects out there calling for our attention, aren't there? Absolutely. But it's still, I mean, that's part of the discipline story comes in that in those moments. And really looking for trustworthy like sources of information. But in the end of the day, really focusing what on what you can control is really a really powerful way and really empowering, right? Because you know, the change is within your hands when it comes to, you know, investment success. Has there been one particular standout from all of the research you've done in your own journey and working at Vanguard that you've been able to apply to your own finances that's made a big difference? I think so. I think in finance, we spend a lot of time talking about returns. You see returns every day on the media. I am guilty. I did check the returns of the market today. But again, those are the things that you cannot control. Now, I think one of the most powerful things that you can do to improve your finances is to save more. So I'll give an example. Imagine that you have $100 and then you want to get to 101, right? So if you invest that in the market, you have to expect that the market will return 1% for you to get to that 101. But the market, you know, sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. So it's uncertain. It may take time for you to get there. However, if you just save that additional dollar with certainty, now you do have 101. So the power of saving, and especially think about a second example. Think about short-term goals. Say that you want to fund a vacation in six to eight months. Even though we think so much about the returns in financial market, most of the money from that vacation will come from the savings that you make. So in the end of the day, I think when talking about investing, savings end up sitting on the backseat, whereas I think savings has a huge prominent role in achieving investment success. So that's what I, I talk a lot to people about you know, sources of value when it comes to investing. And obviously there is a portfolio management side of it, which is the returns, but there is a financial planning side of it, which is really savings, that management, that adds a ton of value. And I think people sometimes don't think of that as much. And I think it's a missed opportunity. I think people can get a lot of value about thinking about savings that pay down. Those are things that don't get enough attention, but they're just extremely important. Mm. And the more you can save, especially at the beginning of your investing journey, the more fuel you can put in that fire of compound interest, so to say, that does make a big impact over long term because you have a longer time for that money to grow. And I know you've recently worked on the Vanguard Principles for Investing Success. Are there any that we haven't covered that you wanted to share? 
So I can just give them a brief overview because they're fairly short and simple. So the first one is set clear and appropriate investment goals. So once you have that, and that's important because you want to make sure that that's, you're creating something that is measurable and attainable. You want to be able to measure to see how far along have you gotten, have you achieved your goals. And you want to make that attainable just to make sure it's not something that is going to depend on outsized market returns that, you know, in the end of the day, will end up frustrating the investor because they won't be able to achieve their goals. So make it measurable, make it attainable. So the second one, once you have created your goals, then it's time to think about your asset allocation. So it's what we call balance. So develop a suitable asset allocation using broadly diversified funds. So asset allocation using diversified funds. Then once you have chosen your asset allocation, as you're implementing, thinking about costs. And cost is not only the expense ratio, we're also talking about taxes. Taxes are a cost for investors. So you know, how do you optimize keeping in mind both expense ratios and costs? And then finally, and I think most important, is to have the discipline. So maintain that long-term investment perspective. And I think what you just mentioned about the power of those early dollars that you save and invest, one thing that I also like to keep in mind is that over time, if in your career you're making more money as time passes, also increasing that savings rate over time can also make a huge difference. So constantly investing, rebalancing, and then over time, thinking about review your goals, have things change in your life. So thinking about that as well, because you just want to make sure that you are you know, still following the goals that you really care about. And the goal setting part can be quite challenging because often we want to achieve multiple things at once. We might be saving for retirement and we might also be trying to build up a house deposit. And we also might want to go on holiday with our friends to Tasmania this year. And it's hard to balance all of these different things at the same time. Absolutely. This multi-goal problem is one thing that we keep in mind because you're right. This is reality, right? It's very rare at times for people to just have one goal. People are and thinking about multiple goals at once. And these are the moments the economist in me has to talk about like trade-offs, right? Mm. You have to prioritize what are the things that are most important to you. And also thinking about, you know, some things can wait, right? So then maybe you start thinking about a vacation next month, just postponing a little bit the planning for it. But in the end of the day, it's about choices, right? We may not have cash flow to fund all goals all the time. So I think prioritizing what really matters to you, I think it's key here. But like you said, easier said than done. It's incredibly hard and not to downplay and think that this is easy, but it's something that it's fundamental that people sit down, think, and there is some introspection involved in it, but it's just extremely important to think about that. I do find it challenging. And the one way I've personally come to terms with it as I only set in my finances one short, one medium and one long-term goal at any one time because otherwise I feel like I can be making tiny progress towards 10 different things and it just feels like everything takes forever. So I try and focus on just three goals at a time. Yeah, I mean, that's a strategy that a lot of people use for work as well. So I actually, when I come in in the morning and I thinking about my day of work I had, I think about, you know, what's the one thing that I want to achieve today? And make sure that I have that set as my goal to make sure that at least if the day ends, I got at least one important thing done. So yeah, I think this is one very good strategy that a lot of people use. And often it can feel like 
a very long journey. When we're investing and we're doing low-cost, long-term investing, we might be investing for 10, 20, 30 years, even more. And one of the other considerations that plays into it is the idea of financial wellness. Now, I know you've done some work on this as well, because we also want to be enjoying the journey along the way. And I'd be keen to hear from you, what does financial wellness mean and how can we feel it within ourselves? That sounds like a bit of a weird question, but like, how can we internalize it? Absolutely. So the way that we define it, Vanguard, so financial wellness is the objective financial situation of a person, a household, a family, but it it is the ability to meet your current and your near-term financial obligations and be on track to meet your future goals. So you see by the way that I define that there is almost three buckets in it. It's just the the current, the now, the near-term, and the future. And the way that we call this is the first pillar is to take control of your finances. So a lot of people say money controls me. So how do you take back the control of your finances? So then the second pillar is prepare for the unexpected. And the third one is make progress towards your goals. So the idea of take control of your finances being the near term, the current, and then the near term being prepared for the unexpected, and then the long term being make progress towards your goals. And how do you think about preparing for the unexpected? Because often we don't know what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about if I were to rewrite the paper, instead of calling prepare for the unexpected, I would call it prepare for the expected. Because even though we don't know what's coming around, we know that there is something coming, right? Having recently coming out of pandemic, then high inflation that we hadn't seen in many years. We had substantial market downturn in parts of the globe in the past 18 months. So the way that we think about preparing for the unexpected is really about building emergency savings. And at Vanguard, we actually have a pretty differentiated way of thinking about this, which is really to think about emergency savings in two different buckets. So the first bucket is for those small expense shocks that you may have, for example, you have a flat tire or the AC in your house stopped working, or you need to take a pet to the vet, for example. So those things that may be unexpected. And usually the guidance that we have is to keep something like half of your monthly income saved up for those expenses. And, you know, maybe putting that in a checkings account, but it has to be because these things come very fast. So you have to keep that amount of money pretty accessible to make sure that you can tap into it in case you need it. Then the second bucket is for an income shock. For example, you suddenly lost your job or for some reason you find that, you know, you need to take time off from work. So then this is a, a much larger expense, but at the same time, it's something that doesn't happen as often, right? So it's less occurring that a person will lose a job. It's less frequent. So here, the guidance is to have something like three to six months worth of your expenses saved up. But I think the key thing here is really about the personalization aspect of it. It has to be something that works for you for two reasons. The first one, when we say three to six months, it seems like that money is going to magically appear for you, but it's not. It's something that first you build up over time. It's very hard to just come up with three to six months worth of expenses. And that's important to recognize. The second thing is to 
about making it personal is to think about what type of career and what type of situation you have. So, for example, in a household with two people earning income, if you are in a career where you can find a job very easily, something, two things happen. So one, you have someone else that in case you lose your job, that person can probably pick up some of the expenses. So the shortfall is not as harsh. And the second thing, if you're in a, in, in a career in which you can find a job very quickly, maybe then you don't have to have six months saved up. You can have something like three months. Now, think about the opposite situation in which now imagine you're a sole income earner and your job is actually pretty hard to replace. So then we would probably suggest that, well, then that person should actually probably have, you know, six to 12 months worth of expenses because you would take time to replace that job and replace that income. So thinking about the personalization here is really key because it's a really tough situation when someone loses a job. Most of the time, it's unexpected. The emotional toll is also extremely hard. So making sure that you're prepared to withstand that shock, it's extremely important. So that's why I think preparing for the unexpected is actually my favorite bucket in the financial wellness framework, because I remember clearly the moment that I was able to, for the first time, have that money saved up for small expenses. I can remember the room that I was and the furniture around me, because it was so meaningful. As I mentioned, I grew up low income in Brazil. I came to study in the US. And one of the things that was really worrisome for me was that in case something happened to my parents in Brazil, I wouldn't have the money to go back to Brazil in case they needed my help. And the moment that I was able to save up for the cost of the fly, the amount of peace of mind that that gave me and the fact that I remember this so many years later just speaks to the importance, like I said, of money being a really personal thing, but really that this is small steps that we're talking about because here I was talking just about you know the cost of a flight, which you know in the grand scheme of a financial life is a big expense, but it's not thinking about a whole life cycle. It's not massive, but it's still that small step, the amount of peace of mind that it brought to me is incredible. That's why we say you know, no matter where you are in your financial journey, we are trying to provide you with the next best actions to make sure you, you have the financial peace of mind that I think people deserve. Absolutely. And that's something really important you touched on that you shouldn't just be following rules of thumb on the internet of like, oh, three to six months emergency fund without really questioning it and going, what actually works for my life and my situation? And what does my income look like? Who are my dependents? What are my expenses? Do I have family overseas that I might need to book a flight for? Or or do they live down the road? And actually looking at all of that stuff and figuring out what are the numbers and what makes sense for me instead of just following something in an article online. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, personalization is something incredibly important. At Vanguard, we have taken this extremely serious because like you said, there are a lot of rule of thumbs when it comes to investing. And here we are really spending so much time thinking about what's the best you know, financial advice for your situation. You know, because even though we think about like, oh, advice for millennials, you know, there is so much difference, you know, within that category. So we really want to be mindful about what are the next best steps for you, right? It's no matter where you are in your journey, it's not inevitable. So it's personalization is front and center. And I think technology really enables us to think about ways of devising plans that work for that person's specific situation. 
Another rule of thumb that gets thrown around, which is a very nice segue to where I want to go next, is in the financial independence movement, and it's called the 4% rule. But before we unpack what that is, I'd be keen to know how you discovered and got really interested in the financial independence movement. Yeah, so Kate and I were talking about this before, so it's very <laughs> uh, it's very timely. I know there's a backstory here. There is a backstory, yes. That question didn't come out of nowhere. So I finished my PhD in 2020. And I mean, you can imagine a PhD is very hard and it's incredible. I mean, I recently met with our chief economist, Joe Davis, and he finished his PhD over 20 years ago. And we're still bonding about the experience of how hard the PhD was. So all that I wanted out of my PhD was to take some months off after. But then I finished my PhD in 2020. So guess what? There was a pandemic in the middle of it which basically meant that I couldn't travel. And that was my entire dream was to travel that summer. So then being the academic that I was, I thought, how can I distract myself? What books can I get? And then I found out about the FIRE movement. So financial independence, retire early. And I really like to think about as two different movements, the FI and the FIRE movement. I love both of them for different reasons. But I got fascinated and bought as many books as I could about the FIRE movement, and I read everything about it. So I got incredibly interested in it. So in July 2020, when I started my job at Vanguard, I had a colleague who was doing research on safe withdrawal rates for retirees. And my first question was, have you thought about applying this research to the FIRE movement? Because there is this rule of thumb about the 4% and what? What do you think about this? And then that was my first project at Vanguard. I still think it's one of those situations I can't believe people are paying me to do this because it's just an incredibly, not only fun, interesting, but incredibly important, right? Because when we're talking earlier about goals, especially I think after the pandemic, people have reevaluated, you know, the work-life balance that they have. And you hear more about people thinking about, well, maybe I want to retire early and, you know, maybe... We're not talking necessarily about someone retiring at age 30, 35, but maybe, you know, five years earlier than normal. And that's, I think, is incredibly powerful. As a financial research and educator, one thing that I think about is it's just so cool to see so many people getting interested in finance to achieve their money goals and their life goals. As someone who works in finance, I don't think there is a higher compliment, a better compliment than that. So I get, just get so excited about people getting interested in educating themselves about the fire movement. Can you walk me through what the 4% rule is and maybe use an example to illustrate what we're talking about here? Absolutely. So the 4% rule, the idea is that you just saved a, a given amount of money for your retirement. And the 4% rule says that if you withdraw 4% of that money, over the course of 30 years, in the United States, you are unlikely to run out of money. So let me give an example. So let's imagine that you think you want to spend $100,000 inflation adjusted every year in retirement. So the 4% rule would say, well, that is 4% of how much money you want to save. So how much money should you invest? So if 4% is 100000 100% should be 2.5 million. So you basically multiply the number by 25. So as any rule of thumb, 
there are some important caveats to be made about this. So do you want me to go through them? Yeah, no, I think that's important there because people might not have read in the fine print that it was originally designed for US investors and the 30-year part is probably important too. Absolutely. So I think that are some really important things to keep in mind. So like you said, the first one is this was only done with US investors, like US market returns. It was for regular retirement. It was not for people retiring early. So the assumption there is 30 years in retirement. There are other assumptions there too. So it only uses US stock and bonds data. So for example, it doesn't take advantage of international diversification. The other thing is it doesn't consider investment fees. So we were talking early on about expense ratios. It doesn't take those into account. And the other thing too is that it assumes that you're going to spend the same amount every year in retirement. So this worrisome assumptions, I actually, before coming here, I actually looked up. So 4% was for a US you know, audience. The equivalent number for an Australian audience is actually 3.4%. So it's done by Professor Wade Fowle. So I'm happy he has this also great book called How Much Can I Spend in Retirement? So he just calculated that number for so Australia 3.4, actually New Zealand 3.8, and thinking about 50% stock, 50% bond portfolio. So I think there are a couple of things that we have seen in this research. So I'll use the US example, which is the one that I'm most familiar with. So if you consider... A four, starting the 4% rule, if you consider now not a 30-year horizon, but really a 50-year horizon, which is really the amount of time that some of the FIRE investors may spend in retirement, if you consider now investment fees, if you consider adding some global diversification, you can actually really improve the chances of your FIRE portfolio surviving retirement. So let me give you a couple of points on this. So the first one is, let's take into account the situations, the worst case scenarios for just one second. So think about when you only have domestic investments in the US. So you're only using US portfolios. Think about investment fees of really expensive investment fees, say 100 basis points. And then you're using a spending rule that is inflation adjusted, just like you're spending the same thing every year, inflation adjusted. So instead of a 4% rule in the US, what we look at in our paper, that would be a 2.6% rule. So instead of withdrawing 4% every year, you would only be able to do 2.6. So that's you know pretty dire difference. Just to show how the 4% rule of thumb can be really flawed for you know a retiree that may spend 50 years in retirement, for example. Now, there are ways that we can make this rule better. So the first one was, instead of using only domestic investments, what about getting some global diversification? So instead of a 2.6 withdrawal rate, that actually gets you to 2.8. So just by going from domestic to international investing, now, we were talking about the principles for investing success. What about if you, we go for lower cost products? So instead of 100 basis points, if you go to 20 basis points. 
So now we're talking about going from 2.8 withdrawal rate to 3.3. So pretty significant in- improvement. But really what makes a big difference is how you spend your money in retirement. So this rule, the 4% rule, assumes you're going to spend the same amount every year. So actually, if you add some flexibility in how you spend your money, the simple rule of thumb that we use there is if the market performs well in a given year, you spend a little bit more. If the market in the year prior did poorly, spend a little bit less. Just adding that flexibility, and we go over how to do that in the paper, First of all, I think it's pretty intuitive, right? You know, when, you know, say you got a large bonus at work, you all guess what? You're going to spend a little bit more. You know, the year wasn't so great. And, you know, maybe you had to cut back some hours. So guess what? You're going to spend a little bit less. I think it's fairly intuitive. So by just adding this dynamic spending process, you can actually start with a 4% withdrawal rate. So, but just by adding this flexibility, it really goes a long way in helping people in their early retirement process. And I think it's a really interesting paper for, it's not too long. It's not a a normal academic paper that I'd expect to see a hundred pages. So I think it was only 10 pages or something like that. I think it is. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I can tell you from the perspective of a researcher, I hate long papers for two reasons. One, I have to write them. And two, nobody reads them. So (laughs) it's a win-win to keep them short. Yeah. And I think it's a good way if you have come across this rule, which I know that was one of the earliest things I came across and it's shared a lot in financial independence groups, even in Australia. I haven't heard the the other number you were mentioning from an Australian perspective. So I'll have to have a look into that. But just thinking about things like if you are going to be in retirement for a longer period of time frame, as you mentioned, global diversification, low fees, and actually being a bit more flexible because most of us aren't going to be spending the identical amount every year. We're not going to go on a big European holiday every year. So some years are going to be more expensive, some years aren't. And thinking about how you can be more flexible, I think is a really important point. No, absolutely. And I think in the end of the day, like we said, we want to give investors the best chance for investment success. So part of that is being realistic about the scenarios that you're facing. So one thing that I also would recommend is that there is actually on Amazon Prime, there is a documentary about the fire movement called Playing With Fire. The last shot of the movie is actually a tribute to Jack Bogle because of the low-cost investing. And what I find is so important about this, the fire movement in general, is that these are people that are pretty interested in learning more about finance. It's the curiosity. It's something that always fascinated me about this group of people. And they are really attentive because we at Vanguard are, you know, really with your best interest in mind and we want to make sure that you succeed. So, you know, writing a paper like this is really to bring the awareness and help you actually, you know, get closer to achieving your goal and no matter what your goal is. And I think that's what's important. We, you know, as you create your goals, and we just want to make sure that you're in your best position to try to achieve it. I won't talk about this for too much longer, but one question we had from listener was how how does inflation play into this rule of thumb or adjusted rule of thumb? Absolutely. So actually, the 4% rule accounts for inflation. Just not to get too technical, but the way the 4% rule was calculated was that imagine every 30 years, 
in the historical data that exists. So say, imagine someone starting in 19, retiring 1930s, all the way to 1960, and then 1931 to 1961, 1932 to 1962. So you get these rolling periods, and then you see what was the minimum of the withdrawal rate that you would be able to have in those rolling periods. So one of those rolling periods was obviously, the, for example, the high inflation in the United States that people saw in the 1970s and 1980s. So even then, the 4% rule was successful. What's scary, and I understand why this question was asked, is because especially early in your retirement, you don't want to see your expenditure going up so much because that can be quite scary. So, But as long as the 4% rule has been tested, it has withstood inflation in the past and much higher rates of inflation than we are currently seeing. So the 4% rule has taken that into account. So I think this is not has not been one of the concerns that people have raised about the 4% rule because it is inflation is embedded into the calculation. Okay, that's really good to know. And hopefully that helps other people who are having a look into the, themselves. Now, Paulo, we've covered a lot of different things in today's episode from preparing for unexpected expenses to the fire movement and behavioral biases. But if you had to leave listeners with one thing following today's conversation, what would it be? I would leave you with two that are linked. So I'm not cheating. I think I'm being fair to the question still. So I would say one is to try to save more. And I mentioned this before, but I think the most powerful force that exists in finance, and that's my personal opinion, is inertia. So if you can make, for example, automatic contributions, so just set aside those automatic contributions to an investment account or to a savings account or to that pay down, just setting that good habit started, I think inertia actually will take care of the rest in the sense that once you start on a good path, like a big, big part of the journey is really the discipline to keep doing it over time. So taking advantage of getting a good habit and making that continue over time through discipline may be the most important thing. So really the savings part, and if you can automate that to save more, to invest more, I think that saves you time and gets you to do and enjoy other things at the same time. But I think it's just extremely important to get those good habits going. Amazing. The power of habits is always underestimated, but it's very important, especially in our investing journeys. And if people want to learn more about you, we'll have all of the links to the research I've mentioned in the show notes. But if people want to learn more about you and Vanguard, where should they go? Absolutely. So Vanguard has this LinkedIn page called the Vanguard Investment Research where we share all the research tidbits, some of the ones that I mentioned today, but really a a ton of different papers and knowledge in different formats that really are extremely interesting. And I'm biased, but it's really the work of my colleagues that makes it so wonderful. And really, in the end of the day, we're here to take a stand for all investors, not only Vanguard investors, and really to try to give all of them, the best chance for investment success. So on LinkedIn, you can find Vanguard Investment Research. I'm also there. I'll share some of the work that my colleagues and I have done. So yeah. So no, thank you. It has been such a, an incredible like, pleasure to be here with you today. And you know, just talk all fun things, fire, 
financial wellness, but really, I mean, the things that make investing just a little easier and a little bit more pleasant. I love that. It's always a good day when you can make everyone's investing and money journey just a little bit easier. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Paolo. Thank you. Very welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.